If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, as we continue to look at the prophecy of Isaiah together. Uh, Random note, I can't resist. Someone please help me reset the clock in the back of the sanctuary to daylight savings time or whatever we're on now. Because it's an hour fast and that's going to mess me up later. How long have I been preaching? Um, but um, well, we can do that after, after 8.30 service is over. All right. Without further ado, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is still. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth, among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Excuse me. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it. And it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let us us pray. 
Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Father, even in the midst of things that may seem harsh, may seem hard, we know that your goodness shines through. And so we ask you, would you give us eyes to see your brightness, your glory, your goodness this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you're on the Titanic. You know what happens. What do you do? Do you admire the chandeliers and the pretty things? Or do you try to find the lifeboats, try to make more lifeboats? Do you tell the captain to avoid the iceberg? It's all hypothetical, of course, until someone actually invents a way to time travel. But the point is, what do you do if you and others are staring death in the face? What do you do if death can be avoided? Why do I ask that? Well, bear with me. I plan to preach something beside Isaiah today. I really did. After all, we have an ordination installation service, so shouldn't we do something unique and and special? As if the Word of God is not special? I'm only rebuking myself, to be clear. You see, then it hit me as I read Isaiah 24. At first, I thought too much doom and gloom and judgment for a special occasion, but then I realized this, this is exactly what we need in a weird sort of way that I'll explain as we ordain a new pastor, teaching elder, preacher today, Richard Baxter, author of The Reform Pastor, fabulous book, once said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men, as a dying man to dying men. Googled that quote this week, I want to make sure I had the wording right. And I stumbled upon an article by Alan Stanton. Alan's a young man about my age, and he just got finished battling cancer. So he had time to think about that quote, preaching is a dying man to dying men. But I have news for you. We have more in common with him than we realize. More in common with Isaiah's audience than we realize. We are all dying men. dying women. Our days are numbered. Only God knows the number. How long do I have left on this earth? As one of our former members who's now with Jesus used to say, there's only one who knows and he ain't telling. I'm dying. You're dying. Sorry to break it to you. It's only a matter of time. So how shall we then live in light of this fact? If the day of the Lord and darkness and dread are fast approaching, how will you live? Me? I'd make sure I was part of the remnant, the ones who remain by God's grace, who will live to see the light of God's glorious presence. It's one of the things we see this morning. Four points this morning. We're going to start here. Number one, an inescapable flood of judgment for all. An inescapable flood of Judgment for all. You see this at the beginning and the end. 1 through 3 in verses 17 through 22. Again, there's a flood for all and it's inescapable. Look at with me at verse 1 and verse 3. <clears throat> Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered. For the, word, for the Lord has spoken This word, a flood of judgment imagery, empty 
desolate, twisted, scattered, utterly empty, utterly plundered. Reminds me a bit of Genesis 1 and 2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the waters. Formless and void. It's like in Isaiah 24, creation is coming undone. Back to formless and void, if that were possible. This is cataclysmic language regarding the whole earth. Suggesting that this is the fate of all mankind. Apart from God's mercy. It's a vision of final judgment. And again, it'll infect, it'll affect, infect, I don't know why that word's on my mind, all mankind without God. Because read verse 2, who is, who's left out here? In verse 2, who isn't named? Who can say that they don't fit at least one of these categories? And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with their mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. This flood, it'll come upon all kinds of people. You know, the original flood came upon all, well, except for eight. The second flood will, will not come with water, but it'll come with judgment. And it'll be inescapable. More on that in a second. But first, notice the context here in Isaiah. Isaiah spends five chapters at the beginning saying, Woe to God's people, hypocrites who've broken his covenant. And then in Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, even me, a prophet. Then Isaiah 7 through 12, it's the book of Emmanuel. Our hope is in Emmanuel, God with us. Whoever that is that Isaiah is speaking of, whenever he will come, our hope is not in other nations because Isaiah 20, excuse me, 13 to 23, what we've just got done covering. The oracles against foreign nations, all these nations will be judged. Israel and all of her neighbors. And then in Isaiah 24, the whole earth, he says, is going to be judged. Isaiah 24 to 27 is what's known as the Isaiah apocalypse. Now, apocalypse has come to mean the end of the world as we know it, that sort of thing. But the Greek word actually means something like unveiling or revelation, which is why the last book of the Bible is called that. It's the future, the present, revealed, unveiled. And here is what Isaiah is revealing to us. This is where history is headed. This is what we all deserve. That's a fun, happy thought this morning, right? You know, there's a lot of anger and unrest in our society. If you haven't Notice that. I'd recommend you ask around. Ask the person who's cutting your hair someday. What's it been like to work in the service industry for the last year or more? Ask nurses. Ask flight attendants. Ask teachers. I could go on. The last person who cut my hair, I didn't tell her I was a pastor or anything, but I soon had something like a counseling session with her. Um, that was fine. I said something like, hey, I noticed you were busy today. Glad I got in. She told me about people cursing her out because they were busy and couldn't get appointments. She was working around the clock, hard to find a day off, hard to find good workers, hard to keep good workers. She told me more stories about people saying mean things than I expected. I said this a few months ago. Almost everyone is overreacting to something right now. Almost no one thinks they're the problem. Everyone, no exception, can do a better job reacting to the overreactions around them. There is 
unrest. We're all mad. We all want to fix what's broken with this world. Whatever we think the problem is. Maybe it's something inside of us. Maybe it's all those other people. But is it possible that we have lost sight of this? That we live in a fallen world. A world with an unknown expiration date. When God will come to judge the world and bring a new order, either by transforming this one or bringing in a new one or a little bit of both. And you see, no one is immune. If you look at the end of this passage, verses 17 to 22, you'll see this image over and over again, the inescapable nature of this judgment. Verses 17 and 18 say this, Terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. Skip to verse 20. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Verse 22. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Without God's grace, this is what awaits us. A pit of despair, a prison more inescapable than Alcatraz. Is part of our disappointment with life, the fact that we've forgotten this, we all should be headed for judgment, all of us. If not for God's grace, it would come upon us like a flood unless we take refuge in Him It's the first thing we see this morning. We're headed for an inescapable flood of judgment without Christ. We're dying men, dying women, unless something intervenes. And then secondly, we see this, a drought of joyous wine for covenant breakers. A drought of joyous wine for covenant breakers. From a flood to a drought. Wine shows up several times here. It'll show up again next week in Isaiah 25. Wine often stands for joy in the Bible. Psalm 104, 14 and 15, it says, God causes the grass to grow that man can bring forth food. And quote, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen his heart. Now, can wine be abused? Can you over gladden the heart so much that it's intoxicated? Of course, and I'm not endorsing that. But God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. And then in verses 4 through 13, it's as if God says he can take that joy, that gladness away. That he will do that for those who turn from him, who seek security and joy in the things that the world has to offer and in him alone. Verse 6, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few Men are left. Notice there are a few left. We'll get to that later. But what has caused this, this curse? Well, we'll see that in a minute. We'll track back to verses 4 and 5 in a minute. But what are the effects of this curse? Verse 7, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant is ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth 
is banished. That's not enough references to wine for you, strong drink and other things like that. There's also verse 13. It says the nations, they'll be like a, a beaten olive tree. In other words, beaten and harvested. There's no olives left. Like it says, the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. In other words, when there are no grapes left. And also remember, who is God talking to? To a people who, as recently as Isaiah 22, said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And he is saying, the day of the Lord will be for you like the day when the wine runs out, when the joy runs out, when there is no day left to seize, when there is no diem left to carpe. The Bible never denies that sinful living can be fun or sweet. But it says it is only sweet for a season. And eventually we all have to ask, am I preparing for eternity? Or do I really think I can buck the odds? I can always find one more pleasure to chase, one more thing that gives me security. Meanwhile, God is always ready to offer us eternal security for those who trust in His Son. But right now, he's speaking to those who had forsook God's security. What was the cause of the therefore in verse 6? What was the cause of everything in verses 7 through 13 that we just read? Look at verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. This drought of joy, it comes to those who've broken the everlasting covenant. What is the everlasting covenant? Well, I could give a long answer. We're Presbyterians. We believe in covenant theology. It's part of our Westminster standards, our official doctrinal statements. We believe that God often works through families. That's one application of covenant theology. We also believe that God's relationship with mankind, starting with Adam, is best understood as a covenant relationship. We have an adult Sunday school class going on right now about all that. I'm sure the idea of covenant is going to be mentioned in the other class about Deuteronomy as well. So what is the everlasting covenant? Well, technical answer, I think it's the covenant of works which Adam broke, which is intertwined with all the other biblical covenants. What's the more layman's terms answer? The everlasting covenant is the covenant that we have broken we sinned in Adam and we fell with Adam in his first transgression. And then once we had fallen, we committed our own sin and rebellion on top of it all. In other words, we too, like Isaiah's audience, have broken the everlasting covenant. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We too deserve the flood of judgment, the drought of joy that Isaiah describes here. As membership vow number one says, we are justly deserving of God's displeasure and without hope except in His sovereign mercy. This is what we all deserve. Now, no, maybe you're not as bad as the people in Isaiah's day, but that hardly matters if we're not perfect in God's sight. Because if you're not, then you too have fallen short. You too are deserving of judgment the hands of a holy God, you too are a dying man or woman. You see, every day that we covenant breakers, that's not all we are, but it's part of 
who we are. Every day when we covenant breakers wake up, and it does not look like this, a flood of judgment, a drought of joy, every day that doesn't look like this is God's gift to us. It is God's kindness which is meant to lead us to repentance and not just one-time repentance. So certainly God wants no less than that. But a whole life repentance, a daily dying to the power of sin, living under righteousness by that same power that saved us from the penalty of sin in the first place. Isaiah shows us a flood of judgment, a drought of joy. But that's not all. Sin is not the last word. Next, we see this. We see a joyous remnant and a conflicted prophet. A joyous remnant and a conflicted prophet. Verses 14 to 16. Let's talk about the conflicted prophet first. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. Isaiah 21, 2 through 4. We talked about the watchman's conflict. I called it back then. Isaiah wasn't the kind of guy who proclaimed judgment and enjoyed it. He did his duty, even when his duty wasn't fun, even when the judgment he pronounced made him weep. And you see something of that again in verse 16. The first part is a little, little bit of good news here. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed Traitor, betray, betrayal, all the same Hebrew word. It occurs five times in that short little space there. But verses 14 to 16, they seem to represent the words of the remnant, those few that are left according to verse 6. The, the remnant who is preserved and saved from the destruction around them that we all deserve, preserved by God's grace, not through their own effort. The remnant does not save themselves. That's why they sing so loud. That's why they're overjoyed. The, the drought of joy does not touch them. And again, this is probably a future vision, most likely. And Isaiah seems to know that not everyone is going to sing the songs of verses 14 through 16. Not everyone. Many of them will know the, the horror described in most of this passage. So he weeps. He doesn't enjoy this. Do you remember the true story of those two preachers I told a couple weeks ago? One of them said to the other, what did you preach on Sunday? His friend said, hell. And so he responded, did you preach it with tears? I've heard one version of that story. Did God bless you to be able to preach it with tears? You preach as a dying man to dying men. If you have an ounce of compassion, you'll also preach with tears, literally, maybe, metaphorically at the very least. Reminds me of something else Richard Baxter once said. Preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to others. Did Isaiah do that? You bet he did. Look at Isaiah 5 and 6. Look at the end of verse 16. Woe is me, the prophet said. He was conflicted because he knew not everyone would see this joy. But some did. By God's grace, you know, as you read through this, verses 14 to 16, they almost jolt you. You're almost like, wait a minute, do these belong here? This, this, this bit of good news, verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastland of the sea, give glory 
to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. From the west and the east, from the ends of the earth, when would Isaiah have seen a song like this? Unless it was a vision of the future. Unless it was a a preview of something like Revelation 5, verse 9, the song of the redeemed. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Praise like this will not ring out until the end. John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Until worship of the true and living God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, there is still a need to proclaim the gospel. Both to professing Christians who need to be rooted and grounded in it more and more as they're assaulted on every side and even from within by ungodly thinking, and to those who do not claim to be Christians, not yet. What does it mean to be a Christian? Oh, many of you know the answer. Maybe not all. And many of your friends may not know. They, th- they may think it simply means a list of vices, sins that you don't partake in. It's a certain attitude, a certain school choice. It's any number of things. And it's not to say that any of those things are bad. But do our friends and neighbors know this about Christians? Do they know that we are those who rejoice because God has saved us from the judgment that we deserve? Do they know our joy? Do they know that that joy is rooted in the cross where the Son of God took the wrath of God on our behalf? Do they know that our joy is preserved daily, not simply by our effort, but by the renewing, sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us? Do they know that? Are we sure we praying for opportunities to tell them. Isaiah spends many verses showing us this flood of judgment, this drought of joy, but he also shows us this, a joyous remnant, a conflicted, caring, compassionate prophet, just dying to proclaim the good news to others. And finally, we see this this morning, number four, a light to dwarf the sun and a lucky few who bask in its glow. A light to dwarf the sun and a lucky few who bask in its glow. Verse 23. Don't ask me why Isaiah's produced a lot of four-point sermons lately. Dirty secret, the fourth point is usually a conclusion in disguise. But quick recap, Isaiah 24, it starts and ends with judgment, inescapable judgment. The good news is in the middle, 14 to 16. But then the good news makes a little cameo at the end. It's... It's like an Easter egg, you know, the kind of clues that people hide in the movies, especially the Marvel movies, especially in those scenes that come at the very end after the credits. You almost miss it if you're not careful. Because in verses 17 through 23, you see that inescapable judgment. It's like prisoners in a pit who can't escape. But then there's this glimmer of hope. Maybe more than a glimmer. Verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. 
Now, first off, the presence of the elders at the very end. Some think this is a small group that represents the presence of God's entire remnant, his entire people, all gathered before him at the end when he is reigning and ruling. Hold that thought. What about this first part? What does it mean that the sun and moon are confounded or ashamed? Both Hebrew verbs could mean ashamed, and this is probably some personification, human qualities to an inanimate object. What do you do when you are ashamed? You withdraw. You might hide the way Adam and Eve hid in the garden when they were naked and ashamed. Well, well, what does it look like when the sun hides? The sun is ashamed. Well, it would either be dark or it would be because an even brighter light is shining and it looks dark by comparison. It's kind of what's going on here. Isaiah is saying that day it will be like the sun is ashamed because the light of the sun will be outshone by someone else. And oh, who could that be? Could it be the Lord of hosts reigning upon Mount Zion on his throne so that his glory, his effulgent splendor, that's a fancy word that means his bright shining radiance is seen before the elders and others. Oh, but does stuff like that really happen? It does. In Revelation 21, verses 23 to 25, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Side note, the book of Revelation has more Old Testament allusions and quotes than any other New Testament book. If you want to understand Revelation, put down the newspaper, pick up the Old Testament. That's what my wife's high school teacher told her a few decades ago. There can be light without a sun because there is a light that is brighter than the sun. It's the S-O-N of God. That's a bad pun, but you'll forgive me when you remember it later. All that taken together, Isaiah 24, verse 23, is showing us a day when the light of the sun will be dwarfed by the brightness of God's glory. He dwells in unapproachable light, and there will be a lucky few who get to see that light. As I said, some think the elders are representative of all God's people who will one day dwell with him and see this. Because think about it, what's the alternative? That only the elders of Christ's church get to see him. As if the elders are better or more deserving. It doesn't seem to fit what the rest of Scripture says. Elders have a high calling, yes. But they also have a high view of their sin, of God's grace. Ask any elder in this church, do you need Jesus as much as I do? To a man, they're going to say yes. And in their own words, they're also probably going to say something like this. I know what my sins deserve, but I know the grace of God that saved a wretch like me. I know how lucky, in the biblical sense of that word, how fortunate I am. How lucky I am to one day see the, the blessing of number six, for example, come to pass. You know that passage. We often use it as a benediction. 
One day God's blessing will be tangible and real. One day His face, His countenance will shine upon me. One day His grace, His undeserved blessings and His peace, His wholeness, freedom from conflict will rest upon me. And none of it will be because I deserved it or earned it, but because He was gracious to me. Do you want to know that joy? Do you want to be one of the lucky few who bask in his glory? Because you can, through faith in God's Son. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard an old, old story. How the Savior came from glory and gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Father, an old story it might be, but it's a new story as well, a fresh story, a story that we need to hear this morning and every morning, a story that we pray we might remember. Father, we pray that we never get tired, never get bored of the basic truth of the gospel, that your Son, our Savior, saved us from the wrath, the punishment that we deserved. God, give us grace to hear it. Give us grace to remember it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.